0: Hurry Slowly is an ad-free, listener-supported podcast, and I rely on your contributions to continue to do this work. If you value the ideas offered by this podcast, you can make a one-time or ongoing donation at hurryslowlyco slash donations. Anything that you can offer is deeply appreciated. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly. Today, I'm in conversation with Kamal Kapadia.
1: Why does climate change exist? It's because our human relationships are broken. And what I mean by that is our economic systems are broken, our political systems are broken, but those are just at-scale manifestations of human relationships. The way we sort of relate to each other economically, the way we relate to each other in terms of our power relationships, and because these systems are broken, we have a planet in crisis. And so I think what we actually are trying to do is rethink our human relationships. And in order to care for this planet, we have to care for each other.
0: Kamal Kapadia is the co-founder and chief learning officer of Terra.do, an online school for climate action that is striving to enlist and educate 100 million people from all over the globe to work on climate change solutions. Tara offers an ever-expanding range of courses, from their flagship program, which is a 12-week course called Climate Change Learning for Action, to climate change programs for VCs, for entrepreneurs, for software developers, and for designers. They also offer a climate farm school, a corporate sustainability program, and courses to help folks transition from careers in oil and gas to clean energy. Kamal has over 25 years of business, research, and teaching experience in the fields of climate change, clean energy, and sustainable development. Along the way, she managed the world's first rural solar PV carbon offset program in Sri Lanka. She earned two master's degrees and a PhD, and she spent some time as a research fellow at the Environmental Change Institute at Oxford. She's passionate about education, climate change, equity, and community all of which are, I believe, essential ingredients as we sort out how to live in harmony with Mother Earth in a way that's sustainable for the long term. In this conversation, Kamal and I feel into the importance of building communities of care and how to balance climate awareness and the anxiety that it brings with climate action and why it's crucial that literally every single person we know starts getting involved with working on climate change right now. I should note that this interview was originally recorded on Zoom on February 17th, 2022, in front of a live audience. All right, let's dive in. On the path to get where you are today, you have done a whole range of things. You have done solar based rural electrification work in India, Sri Lanka, and Vietnam. You have worked as a disaster recovery specialist. You've worked as a freelance writer and an educator. As I mentioned in the introduction, you've earned two master's degrees and a PhD in topics related to environment, climate and energy. I'm curious, could you share a little bit about how you see the through line of your journey and what ultimately made you wanna focus on education at Terra as your primary channel for working on climate change? Absolutely. So.
1: I think I'm drawn to learning because of everything that has been possible for me because of my own journey in learning. And so like if there is a thread that I would draw through all of these, it's that I'm just always learning, and I'm always on a new learning adventure. So even when I'm working, I'm learning, um, and when I'm in school, I'm learning. And I you know, I, I start I grew up in India. Uh, and I went to college in India. Um, And, uh, you know, the path for me to actually start moving out of India and going elsewhere was also made possible just because of education. And so first I went to the U.K., and thanks to that, I got this job that took me to Sri Lanka and Vietnam. Um, And then again, through education, I came to the U.S. And so I, I just so many opportunities opened up for me through learning experiences. Um, And also the other thing is I found community through learning. And so when I I met my husband in graduate school, like I, you know, I, the friends I've made through learning, they're my friends for life. And so I just feel so much becomes possible through learning, um, work opportunities, uh, life opportunities, building of community. And so I, I see learning as this really powerful tool for building community, for finding opportunities, uh, for finding, you know, your life partner, your friends. (laughs) Uh, So that's sort of why it's sort of so close to my heart.
0: And why do you think learning and education specifically is sort of the, the key to moving the needle on climate change from your perspective?
1: Uh, so that's that's a great question. One of the we, one of the things I've noticed, especially in our in our program, is that even highly so there's, there's two levels. Even highly skilled people feel like they don't have enough context and confidence uh, to make that transition. So even though their skills are in high demand in climate work, when people feel like they don't have the language, they don't have the concepts, they hesitate to take that step. So learning really kind of helps. I notice more and more through our programs that uh, there's two key things that people get out of the learning experience. They, they develop the confidence to speak on the topic and um, therefore they, 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 they tell us all the time that, hey, now when I went for a job interview, I felt, that I felt confident speaking on this topic and I, I didn't feel that before. But the other thing is that they find community so it's it's very difficult when you're trying to figure this out on your own. you feel isolated you you feel you're less likely to actually take action. but when you're in a community of people who are all in the same place as you who are on the same journey similar journey to you uh then you're much more likely to also just feel like you can also do it you'll get you, your community provides support your community provides connections networks et cetera so for both these reasons, I think you know. Um, learning is just um, a very powerful tool for motivating people into taking action.
0: Mm. So, your stated mission at Terra is to get 100 million people to start working on climate change solutions relevant to them by 2030, which is a pretty epic goal. I love it. I'm curious if you could tell me more about the relevant to them part of that statement. What does that mean, and why is that important? Yes. So we want to move 100 million people into
1: climate work. And so when we say relevant to them, we mean, um, so people have skills, everybody, most everybody has skills, whether they they think they do or not. Uh, And the thing about climate change is that we need all skills, we need everybody's skills to be applied to this problem. And many people think that their skills don't apply or aren't relevant, whereas they are. And so we want to make those opportunities obvious to people. We want to make them accessible to people. um, And we want people to feel like what they already have is probably already enough. And they can, with a little bit of extra learning and some community support and some networking, they can make this transition into climate work. Um, So we are very, very focused on helping people transition their existing skills into climate work. And that's what we generally mean by relevant to them.
0: So could you give an example of someone who might not think their skills are relevant to climate change and how they in fact are? Yeah, sure. So I'll give you
1: one example. Actually, from our first cohort, um, we had uh, a guy who was vice president of sales at Reddit so he worked in sales at a big online company. Um, and now he works for um, a fast-growing like clean tech company called Pachama. And they, do, they use satellite imagery for all kinds of climate application work. Uh, so they're like a clean tech data science for climate company. And he's, um, he has a high-level position there. I mean, you know, they, they're a company. They need to do sales. He had skills that applied. He needed to sort of get context. He needed to learn like where his interests were, where he felt his, where was that sweet spot of intersection between his skills, his interests, um, and sort of the opportunities that were available to him in the geography that he wanted to be in. Uh, And that's really what we try to do. We try to help people identify that sweet spot of intersection. And so he was able to make this transition um, into this job. And, And we have many, many such stories of people who've, who've made this transition just using their existing skills.
0: I want to discuss more the global approach that you're taking. So you've described Terra as a global startup that addresses vast imbalances in the way that climate is discussed, represented, funded, and taught. And I'm curious if you could speak a little bit more about Tara's goals in terms of having a global uh, cohort or, you know, building a very global community and how that relates to climate justice?
1: Absolutely. So it, it at the highest level, we are not going to get to where we need to get to without everybody playing their part. So every country needs to be doing their bit. Uh, every community needs to be doing that bit it's not enough i mean we're, we're struggling already to move the needle fast enough in the u.s or in europe but hey guess what even if we did move the needle fast enough here we'd still need india on board and we need china on board and we need the whole african continent on board um what what is you know what is interesting is that in say in the u.s and europe actually our overall energy demand is fairly static like we're not sort of Growing in energy demand, but all future energy demand growth is taking place in Africa, in Asia, where these are still developing countries, these are developing economies. And so how this extra where this extra energy is going to come from, it's critically important that every, you know, these countries are also participating in climate action and shifting, shifting the way they use energy, reducing fossil fuels, et cetera. Um, but on the other side of it is, of course, and people sort of know this pretty well, climate impacts, uh, you know, poor people will be affected, you know, imp- can, can people in places that are not the main contributors to the problem are likely to face the worst impacts. Um, and therefore, there's just a very important justice element as well. Sort of how are we supporting these communities? How are we? And that's why I think what we're doing at Terra is so important, because we are building these connections across East and, east and West, North and South. Um, and so in our cohorts, we have fellows, we call we call our students learning fellows from all over the world, um, at least 25 countries represented in our cohort right now. Uh, we have a very large representation from India every time. Uh, and what I think I noticed what is so valuable is how much people learn from each other uh, and how it sort of really opens their minds. And so I'll, I'll give you a very specific example. There are People who live in countries right now where the government is really authoritarian and things we take for granted in the U.S. that we can engage in advocacy, we can be politically outspoken. Um, It's actually life-threatening for people to do that in some of these countries. And so actually for them, the, the only avenue for climate action is often the private sector. The private sector is actually like the one place where they feel, oh, actually, this, this is the one place where it's a safe space to work, where actually there's some interesting clean energy companies coming up or there's some opportunity here. Um, and, you know, just kind of having these conversations in our in our sort of online classrooms where people are just being exposed to even these sorts of things that just doesn't, somebody living in the U.S. doesn't strike them that, hey, this is actually what's going on in another place. Um, it's kind of opens people's minds and just, Helps them understand sort of what's going on, uh, but also these connections are super valuable, like for things like investments or, um, you know, uh, non like foundation money flowing to making connections to people who are starting nonprofits in developing countries. Um, like for both sides to just understand what's what's possible in in each space and how they can support each other. Uh, so that's kind of why. You know, and, and I, I guess I myself, like I think of I'm, I grew up in India. I, I lived in England for a while. I'm in the U.S. For me personally, I can't help but sort of be constantly integrating all these different perspectives all the time. It's part of my identity. Uh, so I think, you know, therefore, the organization that I'm helping to build also represents
0: that. You shared one example already, but I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about the impact that you're seeing Tara have so far, who the students are, what types of transitions are you seeing them make—be um, that in their just their mindset or in the trajectory of their careers—and you know, I'm curious if there's anything that's kind of surprising about any of that.
1: Yes, yeah, so we, we we've seen over time that people are on. Um, we can sort of categorize. people's journeys on a set of of different pathways. So people come to us for this set of reasons. One is they are looking for a new job. So the example I get, I I just gave where the guy was at Reddit, he wanted to shift. So looking for an Italian new job, that's one trajectory. The other trajectory is people are looking to upskill in their existing job. So for example, I do risk analysis in a bank but hey, guess what, now climate risk is a big deal and I need to understand what does climate risk mean for what, what I'm doing in my current job. Um, and so there's people just looking to upskill in their existing jobs. That's another, another trajectory that people are on. Uh, the third trajectory is people are looking to just get more um, politically active. So be more involved in advocacy, um, more involved in active like local activism, uh, uh, so working on climate justice. Uh, so that's sort of like, a, that's sort of like, I guess the category there is not not exactly paid work, but more like volunteer work outside of. So they may not switch jobs, but they are looking for other ways to engage outside of their job space. Uh, this is often happening in developing countries where there may not be that many job opportunities right out there right now but people are still wanting to be engaged and therefore they find these volunteer spaces to, to do that. Um, and then the, the, thir- the, the other pathway is just kind of personal lifestyle changes. And so although to a large extent, people are coming to us mainly for some of these more career-related career, career related things, but certainly some number of people just lifestyle changes themselves, personal changes in their life. And then we get like a really good chunk of people, like 20 to 25% of people who are looking to start up organizations. So they're gonna look looking to startup companies or startup nonprofits. Uh, a lot of people just looking to startup companies uh, coming to just get that basic grounding. But also, uh, uh, so one of the things I, I, wa- I wanted to mention is that we really, we're over this year, we're going to be doing a lot. So right now we operate mainly as a school and we do a bunch of stuff around job support. Uh, But over this year, we are really going to transition into this platform for climate action. So we're going to be an open, wide open, free platform that people can join. They can join various communities. And we're going to be doing a lot more on supporting these career transitions. So whether it's you want to set up your organization or whether you want to find a job, all of these are going to be supported in various ways on the platform. It's a little bit hard for us to track how many people are actually achieving the shifts, partly because sometimes the shifts are achieved after they leave the course. And so it's hard for us to like actually get that data. But to the extent that we've been tracking data, about 60 percent of our learning fellows have actually
0: made a transition um, into climate work. That sounds like a fantastic record. You and I were talking um before we officially started the interview. And you were telling me um, a little bit more about what you just mentioned, that you were moving into a deeper, richer, more community-based experience for what you're doing at Terra. And you were talking about the idea of building communities of care. Could you say a little bit more about that? And your vision for that with Terra and climate specifically, but I think even like within the sort of larger realm of why we need that. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, this, this idea that we are building a
1: community of care, it's sort of, it has, I've arrived at this idea through the work we've been doing because so I, I, you know, I'm sort of trained as an academic. I'm very sort of like head kind of head-oriented person, even though I'm trying to be much more um, heart-oriented. You know, for me personally, it's so important. It's like, just think of the time we're in. You know, think of this time that we're in. We are in a time of multiple overlapping crises. We are in a global pandemic situation where millions of people have died and millions more have been debilitated, um, face loss, grief, fear, anxiety. Overlay that with the climate crisis. Um, think of the political situations that we are facing around the world, you know, threat of loss of democracy, like, just, we are in a time of great anxiety. Um, and so, and the people who were coming into our course, you know, the first time well, first time we ran this course, we just like threw people into the climate science. And then one guy was like, he's like, I'm having, I'm having a nervous breakdown now. You know, and then we realized, well, what are we doing? We can't just like throw people into this climate science without providing the support and care that we need emotionally as human beings in order to be able to take this in and process it. And so we've started, we really started building that out much more. And so we do, a, you know, we, we actually run a climate psychology mindfulness session, like right after all of the science stuff. And we've got a little sub-community, which is called Mindful Terra, where we meet up for meditation groups, et cetera. But right from the start, um, my training in like learning and pedagogy, uh, you know, I, I what really enables learning is kind of just having somebody there who cares about you, who cares about your success. And that's why we run these cohort-based programs where there's always an instructor. This instructor is really Uh, well-trained. You always have a go-to person. So even if it's a large cohort, we maintain small groups inside this cohort and they always have another human being who's like supporting their whole learning experience. And this person is both sort of, yes, content expert, but also a little bit of a life coach kind of just kind of supporting you in your, in your journey. So just zooming out now, and what is, you know, where, where, what is the place of care? Why does it matter in what we're doing around climate change? Um, so why, is why does climate change exist? It's because our human relationships are broken. And what I mean by that is our economic systems are broken, our political systems are broken, but those are just at scale manifestations of human relationships, our economic the way we sort of relate to each other economically, the way we relate to each other in terms of our power relationships. And that's, those are our political systems, our economic systems. And because these systems are broken, um, we have a planet in crisis. And so I think what we actually are trying to do is rethink our human relationships. And in order to care for this planet, we have to care for each other. So our economic relationships should be relationships of care. Our political relationships should be relationships of care. And so it's our relationships to each other, like the starting point for that actually, therefore, has to be self-care. Because if you are just completely overwhelmed, frazzled, overwhelmed with fear, you're not going to be able to make good decisions. Uh, so you have to start with the practice of self-awareness. You have to be able to care for yourself in order to therefore turn up, really turn up, like truly authentically turn up for others. Uh, so, and, and so we really want what we're building to be this community of care. Because people need it, like they come to us. I mean, I, you know, just even right now, the cohort we, we were onboarding, I mean, I was there for the, like the icebreaker sessions and like two people were talking about like the amount of anxiety they had, like they were just so frozen with anxiety and fear that they had had to sort of drop out from what they were doing because they were just so overwhelmed with the anxiety. So how, you know, this person, the first thing they need is just care, self-care. You know, care of others, then they can be, they have so much to offer. They're all highly skilled
0: people. But
1: in order to be able to offer it, they need care.
0: So I would love to ask you a little bit more about the anxiety piece that you just referenced. I was checking out your Twitter feed and I saw that you recently tweeted out a PBS show on Arctic sinkholes saying, Quote, everybody should watch this, but be warned, if you're already anxious about climate change, this will take your distress up to a whole new level, end quote. Um, And I would love to talk to you about the relationship of anxiety to action. For those of us listening who are here in the U.S., you know, we live in a culture that is based on consumption. We have so many opportunities to Learn more about the impending doom of climate change by consuming podcasts or reading articles or, you know, just scrolling through our social media feeds. But doing that generally just increases our anxiety even more. And I would say that cultivating ever-increasing levels of anxiety, as you were saying, is not necessarily conducive to taking action or to actually doing something about climate change. You know, at the same time, we do want to be informed So I'm curious how you think about the relationship between anxiety and action for yourself, like how much time we should spend on awareness versus actually taking the actions that are available to us.
1: So I'll answer that by just telling you how I deal with it. So I I am the main course creator of this course, Learning for Action. So my job is constantly to keep up on the latest stuff that's going on all the time. And I I have noticed over the last two years... um, sort of how much more alarming just the science has gotten. And so, and I noticed that when I read something or I, I, you know, for example, we've only recently discovered that like sea level rise is baked in no matter what we do. So no matter what, we could stop all emissions tomorrow, but we are now committed to a certain level of sea level rise. Or for example, that NOAA episode on permafrost and what's going on, because our methane emissions have really shot up recently. And a lot of that now is... We don't know exactly how much, but there are these natural emissions. So this is what they call a carbon cycle feedback. We don't know if it's really kicked in yet, but it's a pretty dangerous thing because methane is like a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, even though it's much shorter lived in the atmosphere. So I notice when I, I like literally my heart can seize up sometimes when I'm reading this stuff, but my course is not about just problems, right? The course is about also the solutions. And so I'm keeping up with that side of it as well. And there is just an amazing amount of stuff going on. Like, I have been in this space for like 25 years, and just the amount of movement in the last five years is unbelievable. Like, I, I just saw a tweet that said the company that has got the fastest rate of growth, a 10-year period of growth, you think it's the tech companies, but outside of Google, it's actually a lithium-ion battery company. So the the scale at which clean energy is taking off. Um, and we, we get a lot of investors into, we we run a course for VCs and we also have other investors coming into our community. The scale at which finance is, is moving as well right now, like where the money is going. And of course, there's plenty of, we, we can talk about all the problems with, you know, with that too, but also, but just the fact that it's, it's shifting, the, the, the shifts are really at a tremendous scale. Like one of the, richest industrialist in India has committed, he runs like most, a huge amount of the energy sector in India. He's committed to going like hundred percent clean energy because for him, the writing is on the wall. It's just a good business opportunity now. So, so I just sit with these two contradictory things that are going on. So there's this relentless thing called climate change, but there's all of this action. And I am just sitting in the contradiction. And I don't know, like, are we going to, are we going to do this in time? Like, you know, is it going to move fast enough? Like, I don't have any of these answers, but it's not just all the bad stuff. So there's all of this amazing stuff going on. It's got problems. I mean, we're the human race. We are highly imperfect. So what we're doing is imperfect, but it's happening at scale right now in a way that I have just never seen. Like in all of my time um and so first of all so that helps me with the anxiety part of it because i just i'm just gonna sit with all of this but it's never just the one it's not just the bad stuff there's all of this good stuff also going on um and then the other thing i just um think is very important is the self-care part of it so uh we need self-care i mean i believe in the practice of mindfulness meditation i think it's very valuable um i am very lucky that actually my best friend is a mindfulness meditation teacher she's also a clinical psychologist so i feel really well supported by her um i want to provide that support to the community as well we try all kinds of ways to provide that support um because i think it's just vitally important like It's just, you know, our nervous system is so wound up all the time. So just from like a pure like physical system, we just need, constantly need to just unwind that because it's only when we're sort of really unwound that we're going to make good decisions. Oh, We're going to be unfrozen as well Mm. because when you're really just caught up in that anxiety, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to move. I mean, I, I did read something recently about how anxiety can be this motivator and it, it can, I mean, it can also motivate you, but it can also just freeze you up.
0: Yeah. I feel like particularly within the realm of climate, it can be a very create a very frozen dynamic because there's just so much, so much of a feeling of, of doom about it. Um, and people putting things on timelines and, feeling like we don't really know if we're going to meet them. Uh, You were talking about the um, level of uncertainty that we all have to sit with um, before we got started in the interview. And I think that is, that's what that sitting in that contradiction that you're talking about feels like, right? Yes.
1: So can we see this as an invitation to deal better with uncertainty? because life is fundamentally uncertain. Anyway, um you know, I I I, I notice you have a podcast with Mark Epstein and I I just really value like everything he has to offer and the podcast is called The Importance of Uncertainty. The Importance of Uncertainty. So hey, guess what? Climate change, the ultimate the ultimate uncertainty. You know. <laughs> so it's an invitation to deepen to deepen your practice to Mm. It's an invitation to, de- you know, live in this, t- live with uncertainty, like figure out, figure out how not only to live, but to thrive, thrive in uncertainty, because, hey, all of life is uncertain. And, I, I, you know, I think I, I, um, people deal, I think, differently with uncertainty in the West or in the U.S., uh, than in many other parts of the world. And so, you know, I, I lived in Sri Lanka, which at that time had a civil war. And then when I went back, um, they also had uh, this match, the natural disaster, the Asian tsunami, 2005. So they had a natural disaster on top of a civil war. Um, so like, but people were just getting on with life. Like they, you know, kids went to school and people went to work and people had fun and they played music and they, They did all these things in that context. So we can we have the capacity to deal with uncertainty, um, to survive uncertainty, and to survive a lot. We have that capacity. So it's just kind of arriving at that understanding and and you know believing believing that you can do it.
0: Absolutely. I want to circle back to something that you were starting to touch into before when we we're talking about communities of care and you were you know talking about sort of the the brokenness of human relationships and so many different systems and how all of that is related to and feeding into climate i'm wondering if you could describe how you situate your climate work within the larger ecosystem of social justice work and all the many things that we need to do to heal our planet. You know, there's a tendency in some sectors to speak about climate as if it could be addressed separately from other forms of social justice work like anti-racism or gender equality, for example. How do you talk to students about the intersectional nature of climate work and what that means for how they approach it?
1: Yeah, so I'll just start with like my own uh, my own thinking around this, which is that I, I don't think we can solve climate change if we don't deal with justice. So to me, those are so deeply interconnected, and I'll give you a specific example to make it more clear in a minute. So, and so actually, the way we've set up the course, uh, we talk about justice a lot. We 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 run a special climate justice workshop for people, but also the 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 lens of the way the content is framed and shaped uh, is very much the systems lens, and so. Uh, we we think about it as intersectional with economic justice. We talk about it in those terms. We have one specific class that we call climate and development. So it's like really kind of high level. Like it's not about everything that's wrong, but it's about these really interesting models. So like, like donut economics and some other models, which are really integrative, And they're really trying to deal with all of these things, think about them in an integrated way. So we, We've built built it into the course in various ways. Uh, But I want to give sort of one very specific example. And it's almost like a utilitarian way of thinking about justice, but I think, and climate, but I think it resonates with like the widest range of people. And so there was this New York Times article called the Great Great Climate Migration. And it's talking about how climate change is already and is going to continue to uh, create Millions, if not billions of displaced people, people who have to move because they can no longer support themselves. And in that article, they said that right now, 1% of the earth's land is a barely livable hot zone. And by 2070, I mean, it's quite possible that um, 19% is going to be a barely livable hot zone and Mm -hmm. billions of people live in these spaces. And so where are these people going to go? Well guess what they're going to come to the US they're going to try they're going to go to Europe like and when that starts happening that really starts shifting politics in these places too like what happens when we when we start seeing a lot of migration like people start like mm, closing in like and it actually therefore directly affects climate policy because you start seeing the kind of politics that's not going to be supporting climate action like it's sort of the kinds of policies and the kinds of like political processes that are going to get unleashed are also going to be those that are not going to prioritize like climate action. And so, um, so we have to do something about, so it's not just what's going on in our country, but like what's going on in all these other places and how do we as a, a global community come together to make sure that communities all over the world are building resilience, are getting the resources and the knowledge to build resilience. And there is so much information There is, we have this capacity, we sort of know some interesting things we can do. Um, somebody had told me that there's this, I, um, actually there's this quite an interesting project where, um, and I think it's run by the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, where they are um, connecting farmers that live in uh, places, so they've they've sort of mapped out like all the world the world's food growing regions, and they're sort of connecting. So people who already do farming in more arid regions, they're connecting them with people whose like regions might be moving in that direction, so that they can sort of learn from each other. I thought that's like quite an interesting thing. Um, And then the other thing I want to emphasize, even as I talk about this, is that uh, it's not just like what can we do for poor communities, because there's a lot of resilience and capacity already in places that you would be surprised. Like, for example, in Bangladesh, which people always consider like, oh, you know, so densely populated, everyone's so poor. It's these, um, it's this delta region, they keep getting storms. I mean, they have dramatically reduced the rate of death from uh, natural disasters. And this is a very poor country, a very densely populated country, but they have done a lot and they are building resilience in their communities. On the East coast of India, there's a state, very poor state, Orissa. They have this incredible system of like being able to move people to shelters. They've built this whole um, like broadcasting system so people get information in time, everybody's moved to safety. They have also dramatically increased their capacity. Um, New Orleans is a really interesting example. Now. now, is it going to like what's going to happen with sea level rise? Well, we'll see. But since Hurricane Katrina, they have also improved their resilience. And so, we, there's many places where we can learn from. Um, uh, uh, so it's sort of a, a, two, a two-way process. But like so, ju- justice. I feel like you know, I really don't think we will be, we won't have like the political capacity, like if we're not dealing with people's basic needs, like there's not going to be the, we're not going to be able to act on climate. Like people, they're just not going to be the political capacity or the political will uh, because people need to survive and they need to eat um, and they need to feel fairly treated. Uh, so it's just like a very deeply integrated issue.
0: So pulling on that thread a little bit more, I want to go into the incredible complexity of solving our climate problems and the incredible nuance that you're intimating that's required to generate effective solutions. I was reading a summary of your thesis on the aid response to the tsunami disaster that occurred in Sri Lanka in 2004. And a lot of the challenges seem to arise from outside actors coming into a local situation which they don't fully understand with a sort of abstract, one-size-fits-all idea about how things work or about what people need, which seems to be how a lot of aid and or social impact projects go astray. I'm curious, what do you think is a better model or what do you think people should bear in mind as they're contemplating how they can be part of the solution?
1: I I love this question. And first of all, I, I want to sort of qualify that uh, dissertation because I was in this very like academic critical mode, so I was looking for things to criticize. So I, I think it's important to also just like say like w- <laughs> because now that I have the distance and I think about that experience, I think about how many things also were working and were working well. Um, mm-hmm. And when I when I was in Sri Lanka, I, I was I was actually like embedded with this local social movement called Sarvodaya. So, they're this huge, vast, like uh, rural social movements, slash non-pro- now sort of NGO, but they really did start as a rural movement of like lo- empowerment. Um, and they are very, very big and powerful, and they're all over the country, and they just started in one village. Um, and uh, the, the, the places where things were going well is where international organizations were partnering with local communities in, in a sort of authentic way. Uh, and so, because Sarwadhyaya, they needed the resources. Like, you know, they, they, their communities had been wiped out. Like we we needed those resources that came in. Um, But, and so through these partnerships a lot was made possible. Like just basic stuff that we needed. Houses were built, you know, entire, I mean, you know, the U.S. Marines came through and picked up all the big debris. (laughs) Like, because they didn't have enough capacity. Like there wasn't enough like capacity to clean up that much debris after a massive disaster. And so the US literally like sent over their marines uh, and military too with the big earth moving equipment and helps them clean out all the big debris. Uh, so um I think really it's just about like oth- authentic partnerships like you know like in I've learned a lo- I learned a lot living in Hawaii where you you know you ask for permission before you enter a space like you you are respectful of land. You are respectful of other cultures, and you are just you you operate with uh, the right intention and an open mind and humbleness. You come with a humble attitude, and the same can apply in all all our relationships. Like especially when we come into a new place, sort of to come in humbly, uh, open to learning, because you are going to learn. But also real, and also recognizing, hey, here are my strengths. Here's what I bring, and here are your strengths. Here's what you bring, and then how, how do we make this work together? And there were many examples after the tsunami where this was also going on, uh, and I have seen it. It it's it's never perfect. It's always imperfect. We're humans, uh, but it it works. It 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 works to achieve whatever shared goals people have. Um, you know that that play that movement, Sarvodhya Shamadana movement. So Sarvodhya is the awakening of all. Shramadana is the sharing of labor. So through the sharing of labor, we achieve the awakening of all. And the way it started, it was a school teacher, the school teacher, urban school teacher, he just he was so upset and moved by what he saw as poverty in the villages. And he just took a group of people from the city to the village. And they worked together to decide, like, what were they going to do in this village? And they just decided something simple, like, we're going to build a well together, or we're going to dig a road together. But it was through this sharing of labor that they formed relationships and mutual understanding. And every day they would sit and unpack, like, what it meant to connect and work. And they, they built the road.
0: And so how do you see that idea of shared labor and of connection feeding back into your vision for Tara? It seems like some of that is underneath sort of what you're picturing.
1: So this comes back to community. um, And we we see, so, you know, right now we're building our own platform, but right now it exists like to the it exists in many different spaces that even exist physically. So for example, now we've got like little, it's the pandemic, so it's hard to meet up, meet up in person, but we've got a little like Terra Bangalore, Terra London, Terra. And sometimes like when it feels safe, people are actually meeting up in person. So the community is now existing in multiple spaces. they existing physically. Um, we also have the, the farm school where it's actually like a, a um, the, the farm school is a both a sort of online and an on-site experience. So people actually spend a whole week on a farm. Um, We, they also obviously meeting on Zoom and then there's a Slack community. Um, And uh, the one interesting thing we notice is, so we, we, we really facilitate connections. Like we have somebody whose job is just community manager, She's looking at people's profiles as they come in. She's suggesting who meet who can meet who. She's facilitating meetups with the mentors, especially. We have this amazing mentorship program where people who've already achieved that transition make themselves available to our students um, and our community members uh, to just sort of learn, like I mentioned earlier, like just to learn how to make this transition. Um, and they but the cool thing that's happening is there's like A huge amount of connecting going out outside of anything we're facilitating. So people are connecting because they see some, they feel like, hey, we might start up something together. Or hey, you're interested in this. Like, let's talk about this a little bit more. What does it mean to do this together? Uh, So, for example, like we can't see people's like direct messages obviously on Slack, but we know that like two thirds of the communications that are going on is just direct messages. That means people are just connecting, like outside of any of these spaces that we are facilitating. Um, I mean, we are humans, we want to connect. This is what's been so hard about this pandemic, right? Like our success as humans is because we work together. Like in spite of all the conflict we've seen, we've figured out cooperation. Like we figured out cooperation even on a global scale. Like it's actually, you know, as sort of broken as that Paris process is, it's, it's crazy that, you know, we've got every country, thank God now the US as well, Uh, represented uh, in the Paris Accord, like with the highest level of government saying, yeah, we we acknowledge this problem and we've got to work together. And again, yes, it's imperfect. It's going to have problems. But our strength as humans is cooperating.
0: So you may have already answered this through some various threads of the conversation, but I want to come back to this idea we were talking uh, about before of kind of getting into a little bit of a, a frozen state. And I'm curious, given all of your deep experience with climate and with energy, what do you find to be the most effective way to inspire people to take ownership and responsibility and really get involved in climate change, kind of, you know, shifting them from the idea maybe that this is a problem that someone else is solving to this is a problem that I want to help solve.
1: Yes. So, so we come at this in, in multiple ways. Um, so the, the program itself is really designed to kind of keep nudging you along this transition. So we have these things called assignments and the assignments are really about your personal journey. So we're sort of like Forcing you and pushing you. So literally, the very first assignment, like even before the any of the classes start, is that we say, okay, it's 2040, and we have solved the climate crisis. We've solved it, and you played a role in this. You played a role. So what is your story? And just make it up. It's fiction, but have like what? What did you do? Because you played a role, and now Terra is this platform of 100 billion people, and you've been invited back to share your story. So what is your story? Uh, and then by the end of it, we get people to revisit it because like now they've learned more stuff to the course and they, they figured out where the interest lies. So, so how, you know, how is your story shifted? Um, and so, but also by the end of it, they have this very concrete thing called a work plan. And it's this very structured document where they're like, okay, now I know how my skills apply. Hey, here are 10 organizations that I think are really interesting that are sort of, kind of connected to my interests and my skills. Here are four mentors who are directly, who I want to now speak to because in the Terra community, because they're closest to my areas of interest. Um, here are the steps I'm taking next. We try to sort of build an accountability through like buddy systems or just the instructor checking in. Um, and so we, we sort of build all, of, we kind of build, we've built this course to really like, keep gently nudging, but you know, Fair, fairly firmly, but gently nudging you along, uh, and then also all this mutual accountability with the peer group as well it really helps with the community. Um, the the other level of getting unfrozen at a personal level to me is always just arriving back in the present moment, arriving back in the now. Because when you're frozen, it's because you're like worrying about the future, or you're like obsessing about the past, right? Like you're frozen because you're not in this present moment. Um, when you're in this present moment, even if you're in the crisis, you're dealing, but most of the time you're not in a crisis. Um, you know, so you're, if you, you just have to come back to the now and you can just do that. It's hard. It's so hard. You think even though we've been reading about this stuff and we listen to stuff about it and we try to practice, but it's very hard to do that practice. But it's it's like a muscle, right? Like the more you do it, the more... The, I would say you catch yourself a little bit earlier. Like you don't let that rumination go on for too long. So you begin to develop the capacity to notice it maybe a little bit earlier, maybe 50% of the time. And you just come back to the present. Because then when you come back to the present and you're like, okay, I'm okay right now. This, is, this moment is okay then you are like freed up emotionally you have that energy to think about what next um and then I remember reading stuff about like habit formation and always the advice is like start really small so like say you want to meditate like don't say oh I'm gonna sit 40 minutes a day um like start with like the one minute you know download the download the app and like start with the one minute meditation and sort of slowly build that groove and then you can deepen it and so once you are sort of in the present, like what is the what is the smallest thing you can do? Like even if it's just like writing, you know, writing down an intention or uh, just a little bit of movement towards being unstuck. So there's like a we built we've built this course to help people get unstuck and move forward. Um, and also, you know, I think seeing opportunity at the end. So I. I for the law lo- for a long time i was biased in favor of policy i thought if only we are if we do enough if we have enough information if we have the right people in power and we get the right policies in place we're going to solve this problem so i absolutely do not believe that anymore i think everybody is going to play their part and that's the only way we're going to solve this problem um because it's so big because it's so big but you know, it plays this trick on us and it makes us all think we can't do enough. Like, it's this tricky thing where we're like, it's too big and no matter what I do, it's not going to be enough. But actually it's exactly the opposite that everybody has to do their bit. So, and that's how we're going to get there. And so I have completely shifted and that's why we want to be this platform for hundred million people. Because it's like all your skills apply. Everything you're doing applies. Um, you know, if you are just turning up in your kid's classroom and you're giving a little talk, you're figuring out how do I engage these 11 year olds or 10 year olds on this topic, you're sparking something right there. Like you're doing something that's important. Um, if you're just changing your diet, you are doing something that's very important, by the way, like the one thing individuals can do that's radically in their control and very, a big impact is shifting diets. Um, so, I. I think sort of the this process of getting unstuck, there's like a personal practice that can help. Um, and this is not to underplay sort of actual depression. And, you know, like there's stuff that you really need. Uh, you need support. You need to see, you need to seek help. Like a lot of, we need help right now. We need professional help, like many of us do. Uh, and that is like, a it's a real, it's, we are in a very like difficult time. Um, and so, It's not to minimize the, it's not to say, oh yeah, fine, we'll just get over it if you just do this little thing. So I don't want to minimize any of that, but um, I find these things helpful. So coming back to the present moment, being part of a community of action. Um, And I find it very motivating to be part of this community because I just see the advantage of like people coming in new and fresh is that they're not as jaded, quite as jaded as I am they've done you know so they're like yeah i'm here i'm i'm ready like tell me how i can fix this problem um and the one thing i think that we're going to build out much more is like actually having those opportunities at the other end so really having the jobs available we already by the way have a jobs feed for people and more and more what's interesting is our terra graduates are in those jobs and now they're coming back to the community so they are like hey now actually hey i've got i now work in this climate company or this organization and they come back to advertise jobs, and now we've got the personal connect, so people can now easily reach out to these people because they're all part of the same community. So I, we see that like as a very interesting like flywheel for us ourselves at Terra. Um, our first cohort was 20, pe- twenty people, and I feel like we employ five of them already. Right. Like five of them are just working for us. You know, they've all made the transition by just working. Like they are em- the, the person who is the course director of our current of the course that I created. He was an astrophysicist, um and he came to Terra and now he's our course director. So I think just this reaching out and like people will start pulling other people across the line.
0: That's beautiful. I have one last question, which I'm asking all of my guests on hurry slowly this season, as we take everything that has unfolded during this pandemic into account uh, all of the problems and the inequities that have been thrown into even starker relief as we try to integrate them into a new consciousness and to begin again. What is one question that you would ask listeners to reflect on?
1: So I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to suggest two questions because it's a sequence of questions. (laughs) And I think it relates to exactly what I just said. I think the first question is, where am I right now? So where am I right now, and can I just come back into this moment? And then the second question is like, okay, now what is my intention? Now that I'm here, what is my intention? And it, it and it, for you know, if it's connected to climate action, it could be like, what is my intention in moving myself a little bit forward? And but first, come back. First, just come back to where you are. Leave the past behind. Don't leave the future. The future will take care of itself come back to this moment where am i right now next step what is my intention and it could be as just write it down like write down pick up your phone or like just write it down like this is my intention and it could be that hey i'm going to i'm going to go to the terra website or i'm going to i'm going to see like is there a 350.org in my community that i can do a little bit of volunteer work with or is there uh you know um is there like i'm it can be just a that little it can be anything. It can be like, I'm going to choose to make my lunch in this way today. Like whatever it is, like, but what is my intention? Um, And I think we had discussed this at some point, which is like, you are, you're always, you're always starting again. You're going to keep doing this. Like you're always going to have, you're going to fall off and then you're going to start again. You're going to fall off and you're going to start again. And the more you sort of just kind of accept that it's going to keep happening, falling off, It's just part of it. It's not the thing to sort of, yeah, not then that second, you know, that voice comes in your head, you're you're a bad person, you fell off, and then all that stuff starts up. But it's okay, we're all, we're all humans. We're all just figuring this
0: out. All just figuring it out, indeed. One of the things I really loved about this conversation was Kamal's generosity with regard to our imperfections. We've never solved any of the problems that we're facing right now before, which means that we're going to be doing a lot of experimenting, which also means that we're going to get it wrong sometimes. But if we can have compassion for our imperfections, we don't have to be paralyzed. We can start to move forward, take small actions, and begin to play our part in reinventing our relationship with Mother Earth. This podcast is produced by Matt Susich with additional audio fine tuning from Devin Craig Johnson. If you'd like to stay in the loop about what I'm up to and what's going on with Hurry Slowly, you can sign up for my newsletter at hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can visit hurryslowly.co slash donations to make a contribution, or you can also leave us a review on iTunes. As always, thanks for listening. And remember to hurry slowly.